Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. I know it's been uh, probably almost close to five days since I was on the air last with you all, but nonetheless, it's great to be back on the air, and I have great news to report. But I should say that it has nothing to do uh, in regards to switching uh, car insurance over to GEICO. So no, it's not one of those uh, infomercials, um, but then again, I don't really have time to be doing that. The good news is that we are going to be getting, we're going to be starting a new uh, season. And what do I mean by a new season? Well, it's not so much a uh, a new season like, for example, with like a television show and X number of episodes, that kind of thing. But uh, what really this new season is is that it's, we're going to be uh, discussing a new book, a new book topic. That yes, will be filled with. Um, numerous uh, podcast segments like all others before, but there is basically good news to report and that we are now uh, going to be on to a new uh, book topic. So I hope all of you uh, will be excited and uh, ready to go. But then again, all of you have been uh, ready to go, it seems, based upon just how many uh, plays um, or what do you call it, um, you know, people listening per all other uh, segments of uh, podcast uh, topics that have been discussed. So, you know, I appreciate everything that you all have done, not only in terms of listening to the uh, podcast segments, but just really getting the word out to others who are, you know, passionate about history and want to learn more about uh, topics that, uh, that, you know, here they thought they knew all there was to know and Obviously, they have come to learn more than probably what they knew, say, a year ago or, or maybe even 10 years ago at best. That is the unique thing about history. Uh, we're always learning something new, but yet at the same time, learning information that is new about a uh, historical subject sometimes might come as um, something that's not um, on the bright side, uh, learning about a particular um, matter can be um, painful, but it should also serve as a reminder that while, yes, if a particular incident happened, say, close to 70 years ago, or in the case with the, um, the uh, chapter of the Holocaust in World War II, we have to be reminded of the fact that there are still um, situations in the world where ethnic cleansing does go on. It doesn't make it right, but there are... Um, acts of genocide still going on in the world and so therefore we need to be reminded that not only is that activity sadly still going on but we need to be reminded of those who survived the holocaust and and we need to do everything there is in our power to prevent that kind of um horrific um episode from ever happening again where um you know we need to make sure that millions of lives are um spared from that kind of um brutality, or I should say, uh, acts of barbarity. So many of you all are now asking yourselves, Kirk, where do we go now as we are now into season 18? Can you believe that, folks? Season 18. Well, let me ask you all this. Where do you think we're going to go? What have I come up with in terms of where what we should discuss I've decided in this uh, series, or in this next um, book series topic, that we are going to discuss about a presidential election, a presidential election that took place well before all of us 
uh, came into the world. It was a presidential election in the United States that um, that helped uh, pave uh, the course for uh, numerous reasons. But if I told you all those reasons now, then I'm sure many of you all would be asking yourselves, well, Kirk, if you tell all these reasons now, then what's the point in even having a, a long uh, series discussion about this matter? Well, I could tell you this much. Um, we are going to do a prologue, that is an introduction uh, to this um, next book series, and I will uh, tell, you, tell you all the title uh, behind this book before um, this uh, podcast segment is done with. So um, let's fasten our seatbelts and uh, be prepared um, to hear what we're going to be uh, discussing in our next series that, as I mentioned a moment ago, involves a historic presidential election that occurred uh, well before all of us were born, a presidential election that is that took place in the United States. America's Republic, one which has operated under the same governing document, the United States Constitution, for just over 234 years, can claim fame to presidential elections that changed the course of history. Yes, America has seen um, many uh, presidential elections that did, in fact, change the course of history. For many Americans, presidential elections... And if, one, if anybody were to ask me if you could pick three presidential elections that uh, occurred, say, within the last um, 60 to uh, 90 uh, some years, or just shy of 90 years, what, which elections in the United States were significant? Well, for many Americans, uh, presidential elections in 1960... 1932 and 1980 were seen as defining moments in history, not because of turning the reins over from one party to another, but rather the existing circumstances facing America's people at those times. All right, well, um, in 1960, uh, who is uh, finishing out his presidency, given that he is uh, finishing out what's left of his second term? Of course, the United States Constitution has it where uh, presidents can serve no more than two terms, but we do know there was an exception. On the other hand, I, maybe I shouldn't mention the exception just yet, because if I do, I might be giving away uh, part of what I've just discussed a second ago. But as for 1960, uh, Dwight Eisenhower is uh, finishing up his uh, presidency. You know, I found I learned an interesting fact uh, the other day on television that in 1950, so let's forward 10 years earlier, 1950, only 9% of American households owned a television. That's a very small number. But that uh, number changes well before the 1950s comes to an end. I remember my father telling me uh, that he was about six or seven years old when he got um, when he and his parents got their first television, and let's keep in mind that um, pretty much all families in America 
have one television in their home. If anybody has more than one television in their home, that should be an indication right there during that time that um, anybody who, say, had two televisions in their home were probably very uh, well-to-do off. So let's keep in mind that the average um, American family in the 1950s was only investing in one television per their home, and that television was, uh, when the television on, was on, the whole family was watching for most of the time. And there's only three channels, folks, CBS, NBC, ABC. <laughs> the thought of DirecTV, the thought of uh, Hulu, uh, the thought of any of these uh, sophisticated uh, television um, network packages that you can get now were just totally remote, totally foreign, hadn't even been thought of. So e even as we go into 1960, there are only still three television stations. CBS, ABC, NBC. That's just the way it was. So in 1960, television revolutionized political debates. Not just from, um, from a U.S. Senate standpoint or a House of Representatives standpoint, but from the presidential perspective or from the presidential uh, point, of, uh, point of view. So in 1960, television revolutionized political debates allowing Americans that is, the American people, to see firsthand their presidential candidates squaring off against each other, including their abilities to win over people who might have been undecided just before and leading up to um, election time, or I should say election day. You know, most historians know that in 1960, um, if when people watched the debates on television, that uh, John F. Kennedy was far more um, presentable, uh, was far more um, coherent with his speaking, whereas Richard Nixon, on the other hand, um, was a little bit of the opposite. On the other hand, it, it, people still did listen to uh, debates on the radio, and it turns out that the opposite happened, that more Americans who listened to the debates by radio felt that Nixon was the better candidate. So you have contrast, big contrasts uh, between television and radio. But nonetheless, prior to 1960, you, you know, yes, going into the 1950s, people are investing in televisions more, but they have to wait till the start of 1960 to actually see a presidential uh, debate on television. Come 1932, America was facing an economic depression like never before. Well, there had been um, what we call, they were referred to as panics, uh, like the Great American Panic from like 1837. And there were other financial um, crises of the 19th century, but they were probably not anything that would have uh, rivaled what comes in 1932. And that um, America is in the midst of a great economic depression that becomes known as the Great Depression. Never before had millions of people been um, in such dire straits. Many um, of people, I should say in the millions, were unemployed. And not just out of work, but they saw their properties, homes, or if they lived on farms, become foreclosed. And if any of you out there who don't know what foreclosure means, that basically means that it's the taking, uh, taking possession of one's property when the mortgager 
that is the person who owns um, their personal property being the home or the farm is no longer able to keep up with their payments and because of that their homes are foreclosed and they are pretty much left uh, not only is that individual left to fend for themselves but if, if he has a family then his family is also impacted as well and yes millions of americans were deeply uh, impacted on by this great depression but prior to uh, the stock market crash of 1929 and what became known as the great depression many americans had had often turned uh, to institutions like church for help when times got tough. So many of Americans were turning to what we call the private sector. They, you know, prior to um, the mid-1930s, there was no such thing as Social Security. Ironically, though, by the time um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt became president, and he was the only president who served uh, four terms, he died not long after the start of his fourth term, but he is the only exception uh, to this day. So by the time Franklin uh, Delano Roosevelt, or FDR, becomes president, after 1932, government became greatly expanded. Of course, you've got Social Security. You have, at the time, it was aid to um, dependent children and later became aid to families with dependent children, or what well, we new often as welfare, you had a whole um, host of uh, new government programs that were designed to help people get out of the depression and how um, government basically um, would become so greatly expanded uh, to where the new levels of um, offering assistance that got, a, that got put into play, and many of those um, programs of assistance are still in play today, they basically became fixed norms in the greater society. Let's forward to uh, now 42, 42 years later in 1980. In 1980, America's economy faced uh, turmoil along with inflation. And uh, prior, just five years before, in 1975, you have the fall of Saigon in Vietnam. Uh, the Vietnam War officially is over. But people aren't, but Americans aren't coming home, soldiers, that is, they're not coming home to a hero's welcome. And they weren't probably coming home to a hero's welcome prior to the fall of Saigon. This was a conflict that had been brewing uh, for some time. This was a war that even <laughs> President John F. Kennedy fought left and right to keep America out of. Of course, this is a whole other topic, but... I do believe that one of the reasons why President Kennedy may have been assassinated was because of his because of his uh, ideology or philosophy behind not wanting to get America involved in a uh, conflict that um, that he knew had no uh, true ending resolution in sight. But there again, that's a whole other topic for um, another time. But you know, think about it. Five years prior to 1980, uh, the end of the Vietnam War comes, but it doesn't mean that um, Americans are feeling good about themselves. Americans have not been feeling good about themselves for some time. But to make matters worse, um, Americans were being held hostage overseas in Iran, dating back to November 4th of 1979, when Iranian dissidents stormed the American embassy in Tehran. One of the reasons for storming the embassy was... Um, was that the uh, ousted uh, 
ruler being uh, Shah Reza Pahlavi, who have, whom had ruled Iran for 27 years around the time Dwight Eisenhower became president up until early 1979 had finally been ousted from power. Sadly, uh, I mean, as many good things as the Shah had done for Iran, most notably westernizing Iran and giving women the right to vote, the Shah unfortunately um, clamped down on anyone who uh, challenged his authority. And many of people were executed, all because they questioned what he stood for. So the Shah escaped, went to exile, but sadly the American embassy was left to fend for itself. And on November 4th of 1979, Iranian dissidents stormed the American embassy in Tehran, where eventually over time 52 Americans would be held hostage. And they wouldn't have been held hostage, folks, for 30 days. They were held hostage for 444 days. So their lives for about a year and a half, pretty much for about almost 14 months, were hell, torture, not knowing if they would survive one day after the other. Jimmy Carter, uh, the President of the United States, up until January 20th of 1981, uh, tried fervently to get the hostages released, but sadly they were not released on November 20th, 1981. They, the hostages were released, were released shortly after Ronald Reagan had become, had become was sworn in as president. Ronald Reagan was probably one of the most favorite of all presidents I have lived under. How much I miss him and how I would... Not to discuss politics, people, but I think the world itself could use another Ronald Reagan. America herself could use another Ronald Reagan right now. Prior to Ronald Reagan's coming into office, the only thing America Americans had felt good about came at the start of 1980. February of 1980, that is. The 13th Winter Olympic Games had took place in Lake Placid, New York. 20 college hockey kids, whom were coached by the late Herb Brooks, Banded together as one, they were amateurs. They weren't feared or respected, most notably by the Soviet Union or anybody else that they probably would have, uh, whom they competed against. But these 20 amateurs, or 20 college kids, went on to do the improbable at the Winter Games. Sure, they won the gold medal, but before they could even win the gold medal against Finland, they had to go up against the mighty evil empire, the Soviet Union, government-sponsored magicians. And what do you know? David, being the American kids, Goliath, the Soviet Union, David had slewed Goliath. And not to get off track here, but you all might like this uh, piece of history. Uh, when my wife and I were in Lake Placid, New York, almost 12 years ago, celebrating our five-year anniversary, we got a tour of the uh, Olympic Arena, where uh, history had been made back in 1980 with the Miracle on Ice, our tour guide told us that um, that uh, about a day after the uh, Americans had beaten the Soviets, uh, parents of the American players came into the mess hall uh, to have their lunch. The Soviet players were sitting there, and they got up and applauded the parents of the um, of the sons whom had defeated them. They applauded them until their coach told them to sit back down. 
Well, the Soviets ended up winning the silver medal, but as one of their players said, when you win the silver medal, it's one thing, but it's not that big, of, but it's not that nice of an honor in the Soviet Union. Because when we came home, we got asked such questions like this. Whom did you lose to? Some students? And what was the matter? Were you drunk? Well, our tour guide told us that, um, that the Soviets, all 20 of those uh, Soviet hockey players, whom were government-sponsored players, they all lost a rank in the military, in the Soviet military, that is. That's just how powerful the loss was. In a time of heightened tension, at a time when morale was low for the American people, the American kids winning the gold, that gave Americans hope. Even knowing that 400, even knowing that 52 of their own fellow um, brothers and sisters were being held hostage under the reign of uh, Ayatollah Rumola Khomeini. But by the time Ronald Reagan arrives, Reagan's arrival into the high office re helped reinvent America, helped reinvent the American military. Everywhere Reagan went while campaigning, his goal was to lift the people up. And Ronald Reagan did, in fact, get America back on track by getting her back on the world stage where she belonged. And how true it is that Ronald Reagan won the Cold War without firing a shot. Margaret Thatcher, folks, was the one that said that. So now we're going to move on to uh, what we're going to be discussing. I gave you all some examples of presidential elections from within the 60 to 90 year range that had a major impact. But now we've got to go back even further. So let's be prepared. Prior to the 20th century, America's early years as a republic, early years, folks, what should, what should, tell, us, what should that tell us right there? Should that tell us early years, meaning at the very, towards the very end of the 18th century, um, in the time right after the United States Constitution was signed and ratified by the states? Perhaps so. So prior to the 20th century, America's early years as a republic were challenging. Think about it, folks. Do you think when George Washington became president that he had a surplus? No, the government was running on deficits. The government wasn't even sure if they could perform the most basic tasks on a day-by-day -day basis. That's how worried our forefathers, or how concerned our forefathers were. Okay, yes, we, the states have ratified. We've got a document. Now the question is, can we have a government that can function, that, that can do the most simplest tasks, but a government that can actually pass legislation, a government that can raise revenue, over, that over time will erase existing deficits. So, again, prior to the 20th century, America's early years as a republic were challenging, especially when George Washington became the nation's first president on April 30, 1789. Although Washington ran unopposed and served as an effective commander-in-chief throughout his eight years in office from April 30th of 1789 to March 3rd of 1797. The practice of dirty politics, however, existed during our Republic's early years, and ironically, not much has changed throughout the years since our forefathers 
first created, or I should say established, the United States Constitution, which, is, which has guided America in the best and worst of times. So it is fair to say, folks, uh, that dirty politics has been around, yes, since the beginning of time, but it has also been around since the time that the United States Constitution was first established. So when I think about how dirty politics evolved in America during her early years as a republic, two men come to my mind. Sure, there are others, but if I had to pick two, which two would they be? Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton. How does Thomas Jefferson fit into the uh, category as someone who uh, would practice dirty politics? Well, I'll tell you all that here in a moment. We do know that, um, or most of us should know, that both of these men served under uh, George Washington, but not for the entire uh, duration of his uh, presidency, being the full eight years. Thomas Jefferson went on to become our nation's first Secretary of State. Alexander Hamilton went on to be become our nation's first Secretary of the Treasury. Both men fought bitterly against each other, all in the name of political ideologies over how the republic itself was to be governed by those above. Okay, well, what do we know about Alexander Hamilton, real brief? And we're going to know, we're going to learn some more about him in this uh, series. But if anybody could tell me right away, what comes to your all's mind when you think of Alexander Hamilton? Is he someone who believes that... Uh, that there should be a strong central government or a weak central government? The answer is choice A, strong central government. Whom does Alexander Hamilton have more faith in? The wealthy and the well-educated to be running the government or um, small um, business owners, or not just business owners, but um, maybe everyday people like farmers? The answer is choice A, the wealthy and the well-educated. So for men like Alexander Hamilton, he feels that those whom are wealthy and well-educated, whom are very knowledgeable on an assortment of subjects that are vital to America's uh, national security and her economy, are the ones that need to be controlling the show. Why put power in the hands of people whom aren't educated in the mercantile industry? What would they have to even come home and tell their constituents? If they're not educated, then why put them there to begin with? So, um, yes, for Hamilton and Jefferson, they both fight bitterly against each other, all in the name of political ideologies over how the republic itself was to be governed by those above. It could be fair to say that Hamilton, has, um, Hamilton would like the government to be run like a pro-British style um, system. Thomas Jefferson, the opposite, pro-French. In other words, Thomas Jefferson does not want the government running as if it were like the equivalent of a monarchy, given that we just fought a war not long ago to keep um, kings out of our country. We fought a war to keep uh, people from not having titles of nobility on our own soil. So for men like Jefferson and Hamilton, their opposition towards one another would go beyond the confines of direct person-to-person -person contact where newspapers, and newspapers will, discuss, will be discussed even more throughout the series, newspapers would emerge as a new source behind partisan politics. 
I'll just tell you real quick, there were plenty of newspapers back then that catered not only to just Federalists, but to the Anti-Federalists, or what we call the Jeffersonian Republicans. So the, even the newspapers were partisan. But is it fair to say that even newspapers themselves can be partisan? Sure, you've got newspapers that cater to, um, to those whom are on the right, and you've got newspapers that cater to those on the left. If there are newspapers that cater that represent middle ground, they are in, a, in an elite minority onto themselves. Whereas George Washington had run unopposed during his two terms in office, 1796 marked something different. An election involving two men would determine whom succeeded Washington. So this is the first time now that we have got an actual election going on between two candidates. I'll tell you, George Washington's going to be tough to replace because, you know, he's first in the hearts of everybody. Can do no wrong. It was probably a good thing that George Washington was our president when our, um, when our uh, republic first took place. After all, Washington is a man who has seen it all, and without his leadership during those uh, first years of the Republic's existence, I'm not sure if the Republic itself would have um, survived. So, here we go. In 1796, we have an election involving two men whom would determine, which determined whom succeeded Washington. But the ironic thing is that during this, during this election, how it was set up was that the runner-up candidate with the second most votes ended up with the vice president post. In 1796, John Adams, George Washington's vice president of eight years, barely defeated Thomas Jefferson, the former secretary of state, carrying 71 electoral votes to Jefferson's 68. Adams was a Federalist, whereas Jefferson was an anti-Federalist. Adams was the new president, and Thomas Jefferson, the vice president. Has there ever been any other time in our nation's history, folks, where a president was elected representing one party and the vice president was of the opposing party on the national level? No. This was the only time, folks, in 1796 where it happened. Now, of course, you know, on the state level, your uh, governor... Say, for example, a governor of a state could be um, a Democrat, but yet the re uh, lieutenant governor and the attorney general could be Republican. So the unique thing on the state level is, while, yes, you could have a, um, a sweep from the governorship, lieutenant governor, and um, attorney general from one party, but you're always, there's always a guarantee that there could be a split ticket where uh, the governor is a Republican, the, Dem the lieutenant governor is a Democrat, and the attorney general is a Republican. That's the unique thing about what can happen on the state gubernatorial process. But, that, but as for the national level, never before, or only one time it happened, and it happened in the 1796 election where John Adams became president, Thomas Jefferson vice president, but both men were of opposing parties. Well, Americans have been accustomed for so long to where going um, to the voting polls means that whomever they select as a presidential candidate automatically has a running mate, being the vice president. 
Well, America's early years as a republic offered no such platform that we now know today. I'll tell you all more here in just a moment. Hang tight. So, if there wasn't any platform in the early years of America's Republic on, um, on how um, a president, not so much how a president got elected, but how um, the uh, platform for president, vice president went about, we're going to find out right now. So the framers of America's Constitution ended up devising a plan that is listed under Article 2, Section 1, Clause 3. Under this um, particular article, Article 2, that is, Section 1, Clause 3, the mandate called for allowing each elector the right to cast two votes for president. Whichever candidate got the majority of votes from electors went on to become president whereas the runner-up candidate got the vice president slot. I know this seems confusing and maybe a little overwhelming, but this is what we, re this is what we know or refer to as the Electoral College. This is the body that elects the president of the United States. Yes, we have a popular vote, and this is something that will be continuously debated for a long time to come. There are people who don't like the Electoral College. They feel that it's outdated, that it's that it has no longer that it no longer serves its purpose. But we have to keep in mind, folks, that when our forefathers were implementing this constitution or this um how do you call it? They didn't call it a democracy. They they envisioned our new government as a republic. Of course ben, Benjamin Franklin told someone after the that uh, Constitutional Convention ended, he said that uh, this new style of governing is going to be called a republic. The bigger question is, can you keep it? And what, what do I mean by can you keep it? Well, can you keep it not just short-term, can you keep it long-term? So for our forefathers, they, know, they knew that um, the right to vote was important, but they did fear something about the popular vote. They felt that if the popular vote prevailed in determining who won the presidential election, then too much power would get placed into the hands of the people to where maybe the people would would not um, have um, what's called checks and balances. Yes, there are checks and balances in our government that keep one branch of government from overpowering the other, but don't the people might sound dictatorial for me to say this, but there is nothing wrong with having checks and balances on what even on what the people can do. Sure, their vote might sure their vote can count, but is it safe to say that even a popular vote alone can um, can ensure that uh, democracy prevails long term? Well, that that could be a whole other topic for another time. But the bottom line is that our forefathers. Our forefathers knew that there were um, many factors that went, that would go into choosing how a president ought to be elected. But if one stands out above if one stands out above all others, it pertained to when a candidate got chosen. Okay, when do we elect a president, folks? Once every four years, on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. Of course, we all know that. Um, 
that uh, that if a president were to die or if a president were to be impeached, uh, if a president were to resign prior to a presidential election, then the, there is an exception. But if none of those things happen, then obviously an election is going to take place once every four years, according to the United States Constitution, on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. But for our forefathers, electing a president required having set guidelines implemented from leaders above whom were knowledgeable in knowing what was appropriate and not appropriate to tolerate per, de per the demands from those governed below. Is it fair to say that uh, our forefathers were trying to ensure that government wasn't catering to the wishes of faction groups whose purposes aimed at doing the exact opposite? So in other words, if the government if the government was catering to the people based upon the popular vote, could it mean that the government was also catering to uh, factions? Absolutely. The popular vote is not about factions. It's about everyone whom is participating in the democratic process. The Electoral College is a separate independent, independent body where electors are selected from each state but they are not campaigning to hold the position. They are elected uh, by state officials whom, cast, whom go about casting their votes, not only for the candidate, but overall as to, whom, as to which candidate wins the electoral votes of the state. Is this an example of checks and balances at its best, despite it being complicated? Yes. Is it a good example of where the Electoral College in the eyes of our forefathers, the Electoral College was working to ensure that government wasn't catering to the wishes of faction groups whose purposes, whose purposes aimed at doing the exact opposite, meaning that if there was no Electoral College and the popular vote prevailed, then the, um, then the American people could um, issue um, what we call voter referendum recall at any time where they could say, hey, I don't like what the president of the United States is doing. Let's issue a recall and see if we can vote him out of office. If you, ha if you give that much power to people, then how can, then how can a democracy uh, exist? How can a democracy properly function? Well, come 1800, the start of the 19th century, John Adams was facing re-election for a second term. Ironically, his opponent would be none other than Vice President Thomas Jefferson, leader of the opposing party, whom questioned many of Adams' political tactics. And we'll um, learn in some other um, segments um, down the road why Jefferson questioned some of Adams' um, tactics and why the two of them... Um, ended up disagreeing more than, than, how do you say, it? we'll learn more as to why they disagreed on so much versus doing the opposite, that is, agreeing on stuff, which also may have included learning to, to disagree without being disagreeable. Prior to the dawn of the 19th century, the Federalist-controlled government operated as if the institution of democracy didn't exist. 
On the other hand, though, let's, I should point out to you all right now that George Washington was the only president whom, was not, um, whom did not affiliate himself with a political party. He was basically a unit, either a Unitarian or an Independent, but he did not call himself a Federalist or an Anti-Federalist. But it is fair to say, though, that by the time Washington left office, the Federalists were operating the institution of democracy, not like a traditional democracy ought to be run, but government was being, um, it was being, uh, how you call it, I don't know if I'd say manipulated, but it was not, it was not being um, operated as it should. Rather, the Federalists sought to run the government like an oligarchy, where power got placed into the hands of an elite or a small select group of men whom distrusted the masses below, whom lacked the formal means of participating in their government. So, in other words, if government is being run like an oligarchy, where power is placed into the hands of an elite, faction of men that means that they don't trust that means they probably don't trust 90 or 95 percent of the people below them to make any kind of rational decision because in their eyes they just don't see that 90 to 95 percent as being well educated on um, essential matters that uh, would cater to those from the mercantile industry for example it might be fair to say, though, that uh, by the time John Adams is president and after, and shortly after his presidency, that the Federalists are not only dominating in New England, but it might be interesting to find out if they're dominating elsewhere in the, um, say, in the middle states as well as in the southern states. Well, John Adams's predecessor, George Washington, had warned in his farewell address the dangers political parties themselves possessed most notably factions. And what are factions, folks? Well, let me ask you this. Do factions unite or destroy something? Or do they destroy an organization? Can, they, can factions be responsible for splintering an organization into two um, groups versus one unified group? Uh, the answer is yes. Factions can do... Um, lots of harm, uh, big and small, to where um, if the uh, tension is not um, curtailed, it will um, have uh, catastrophic uh, consequences. So, yes, George Washington, um, right before he leaves office, he, his farewell address focuses on the dangers that political parties possess, most notably these factions where small organized dissenting groups have the potential to splinter their parties over all, over all state, to splinter their parties over all state, that is their overall state of well-being, where the party itself over time could completely disintegrate if these... Um, factional problems or disputes don't get resolved in the present mo moment. Going into 1800, one would believe the Federalists had everything going for them. But inside the party, rift, or I should say tension, existed. 
Whereas John Adams sought to balance the playing field between few and many in government. In other words, he didn't want there to be any kind of lopsided uh, percentage number of the few in control versus the many being at a disproportionate number. You know, maybe it's fair to say John Adams is a moderate Federalist going into 1800, but at the same time, he has a fellow Federalist rival being none other than Mr. Alexander Hamilton, who is more interested in preserving the status quo of his party, where the government would continue to function, or I should say operate, in the hands where power in the hands of a few of, of an elite few that is whom would um whom would control everything and leave the masses unattended i'm beginning to wonder and we'll find out in this uh series if this um existing uh rift will have a have a profound impact on the federalist party's future Thomas Jefferson, the anti-federalist party leader, envisioned under his philosophy, if elected president, a government that catered to many, mostly farmers, as they represented a large percentage or chunk of America's population. Just before and going into 1800, folks, about 90% of the American population is living on farms. So it might be fair to say that 10% of America's population is living in urban centers uh, where ports are, uh, are nearby. And if ports are nearby in the urban centers, that's where you have uh, your mercantile um, interests that would benefit men like Alexander Hamilton, for example. To Jefferson, farmers were the people whom could make a democratic republic successful because their power wasn't placed in the hands of an elite few. For Jefferson, winning the presidency was one thing, but in order to win, the movement had to be grand, a revolutionary, meaning that representatives and constituents needed better rapport with one another, and there also needed to be effective party skill um, mobilization, or I should say party skill organization tactics. In other words, how are we going to um, promote our party? What What's going to make our party stand out from the current party that's in control, not only of the um, executive branch, but also the legislative branch? Prior to, prior to and around 1800, Federalists were dominating the congressional landscape, not only in New England, but also there was great um, number of number of uh, federalists, um, not only on the national level but on the state level in Jefferson's Virginia. But we also should keep in mind that in 1800 there is no West Virginia just yet. There is no Ohio. There's no Indiana or Illinois. All of that is Virginia territory, even Michigan. So. Let's keep in mind, Virginia probably in 1800 might have close to 20 electoral votes. So let's keep in mind just how big Virginia was in 1800. Uh, the presidential election of 1800 produced a series of unique firsts. And we will learn uh, a good deal about those firsts in um, other podcasts down the road. But how America moved forward in the aftermath of this election is a story which must be told. 
The men whom ran for high office were men of high ambitions, but one's but one party's future would carry the torch long term, whereas the other party whom would lose was in for a rude awakening. They either had to find ways to reinvent themselves, or if they didn't reinvent themselves over time, they ran the risk of going um, extinct, largely in part because of what all had unraveled in 1800. So there you have it, folks. For those of you who were wondering what election could have been significant or powerful well before we arrived, it was uh, the election of 1800. So who exactly is the author behind uh, this new book we're going to be talking about? Well, the title is the following, Adams versus Jefferson. The Tumultuous Selection of 1800 by Mr. John Furling. So that's what we're going to be discussing about in our new uh, podcast uh, book series, Adams versus Jefferson and the Tumultuous Selection of 1800. Two forefathers whom signed the Declaration of Independence were on the Committee of Five. They, the two of them, along with John Jay, Benjamin Franklin, Robert Livingston, not John Jay, Roger Sherman, pardon me. <laughs> Glad I corrected myself right there. <laughs> that wouldn't have been good if I hadn't. But uh, yes, to think that two, uh, two giants whom were unified in um, separation from England now stood against each other for the high office. Their political ideologies are different, and that comes with time. But we will learn more about why their ideologies are different and how their ideologies distance them to where, over time, they go years without speaking with one another. We will learn at some point how one man's loss impacted him for a long period of time, whereas another man's victory ushered a revolution. Well, let's fasten our seatbelts and be prepared uh, for what um, for what lies in store in Adams versus Jefferson, the tumultuous election of 1800 by John Furling. Thank you again um, for your time, and I look forward to being back on the air again um, here soon. Uh, thanks to all of you, my fellow 101 listeners, whom go above and beyond to listen and benefit from um, from my teachings. Thank you, because without all of you, I'm not sure where I would be in the world of uh, podcasting. So um, hats off to all of you. Take care for now and stay safe.